Tonight I'd like to speak about the story and the storyteller. And what I would like you to do, is, because uh, this uh, talk can perhaps become a little abstract, is uh, for you to ground it with your own experience of being a storyteller and the stories we tell ourselves all day long. <clears throat> I don't think I need to explain what a story is <laughs> because we've lived them with them for a week now. But for those of you who happen to have missed yours... <laughs> Uh, the story is the embellishment that we give life. It's the history that we bring to life. It's the expectations we have of life. It's the worry and planning and directed view and predisposition and the attitude and all of the storyline that we bring uh, to this moment. This moment. And like any... um, storyteller, we don't like a blank page, do we? In fact, we don't like any white showing. <laughs> Even if we have to scratch a little. Just to <laughs> so um, I'd like to compare Buddhism to a donut. Now, when you've been teaching 20 years, you run out of appropriate metaphors. <laughs> so stay, stay with me for a moment on this donut. <laughs> Mostly we stay on the rim of the donut. And the rim of the donut in our practice is very much the um, skillful means we use to apply to our lives to come into self-acceptance, self-allowance, self-acknowledgement, to uh, offset some of the tendencies we have to self-abuse, the way that we uh, hold ourselves in self-judgment. And so there's a whole display around the rim of the donut that gets us prepared to dive into the middle. Now, Ajahn Buddhadasa, one of my teachers in Thailand, used to say, any teacher, any teaching... Uh, that talks about anatta is good teaching. Any teaching that doesn't talk about anatta misses the point. So the point of the donut is the whole. I'm sorry to say. (laughs) And each of us have different dispositions to dive into that hole, don't we? I loved that hole. I I really, I didn't want any of the uh, periphery the circum, uh, circumference. I really loved and still love the mystery. It remains the motivating, single motivation for my enthusiasm. Um, but many people need the outside layer, and I acknowledge that. And I think one of the reasons that I'm teaching this tradition is that I am here to learn Uh, how to teach the outside layers as well as the middle. But we cannot forget the middle. We just cannot. If we miss the middle, we miss the central theme of Buddhism. It just doesn't work. 
No more, it doesn't work with, a donut doesn't work without the whole, and Buddhism doesn't work without anatta. We just need to really understand it. Now, it's not that Buddhism is only about that any more than a donut is only about the whole. Character development it has a very important part to play uh, in Buddhism that I believe. And we talk a lot about cultivating and nourishing qualities in ourselves. And I think the Buddha was far-reaching enough in his understanding that he realized that he was going to bring the whole of humankind up in his... T- I don't think he was really um, interested in just that historical moment. And to teach character development so that we allow ourselves to be safe in each other's presence. So that we hold non-harm as the way we can relate with each other interpersonally is essential for all of us rising up above the rim of this donut together. We are each other's worst enemy and we keep each other into our own pain through our judgments and comparisons and all the ways that we play our story onto others. So character development, I don't in any way want to um, disparage that. It's just that it's not the central theme of Buddhism. And so when we move into this central theme which can sometimes be scary. My teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, again would say to me, say, don't be afraid to shake them up. Don't be afraid to shake them up. So the story in the storyteller is a step into the whole. So come with me. Come on. Together we're safe. Together we can do it. Now, the storyteller and the story are mutually dependent upon one another. In fact, it may be very easy to understand that without a storyteller, there would be no story. But it may be a little more difficult to understand that without a story, there would be no storyteller. But that is, in fact, true. In fact, the storyteller is a part of the story itself and does not exist outside of it. Now, that's an interesting point because we believe it's just the opposite. But you get a sense of that when you sit down and the mind runs off a story without your volition. It's writing its own page. And you think, whoa, who is the storyteller here? And today, when Christina introduced thought, I mean, if you can hear thought, if you can actually listen to thought as you're listening to me, which at some point in your practice, if you persist, quite likely will happen, then where is, who is the storyteller in this? And what is the storyteller? We get a sense, however, 
that we still claim ownership of it. We still come out of the meditation, even though we've seen this thing, and say, me, I'm the storyteller. And we get a sense that the eye is not going to extinguish itself. The storyteller is not going to go easily. Hmm. If at all. But we begin to understand how the storyteller works with the story to build the antagonism and the drama so that the story works and so that the storyteller weighs in as an outside influence on the story. And there has to be an antagonist. In any good story, you have to have an antagonist, right? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And this antagonist is reality. It's reality, the R word. So we've got an antagonist, and we've got a set disposition to write a story, and so we're off and running. Now, the story's job, the the storyteller's job in writing the story is to create a definition for him or herself as the storyteller. And so the story does just that. It sets a tone of who and what I'm about. Think of your story. Think of all the ways that you hold yourself, all of the ways that you react, all the ways that you perceive, not only yourself, but life itself. All the definitions you give things, all of the angst and resistance that we have, when we look at our life, our inward life, and our life in relationship to others. And you begin to see that the source of that sense of self-definition has to do with the resistance that we give to the story. And When we're afraid, it runs towards even greater definition. In our current times, that's called patriotism. (laughs) And you can see what happens when the fear light of the terrorism goes from orange to whatever. Fear increases, and our sense of definition increases, and our sense of antagonism increases. And this is a perfect example of what we do all the time with ourselves to give ourselves great definition as we move through the day, creating deliberate antagonism through our story. Because it's only through the story that the antagonism works. It doesn't work when we just leave the blank page of the moment to be what it is. We have to write the script of antagonism on it in order for us to have the definition off the page. And the storyteller justifies its method over and over again. It doesn't 
justify its method by releasing the reactivity. It justifies its method by increasing the reactivity. Which is to increase the resistance, which is to increase the definition. I was uh, in Texas in 1991, I believe, and we, I was setting up a hospice program in that central Texas. And some um, insane man crashes his car into Luby's restaurant, and this is in the catchment area of the hospice program. And he gets out, and you may remember this, he kills like 23 people with a gun. Gets out of his runs his runs his automobile into uh, the plate glass window and then just shoots all the customers. Well, the area that I was in was small enough so that virtually everyone knew someone who had been wounded or died. And the next day after that event, I was called to go to Colleen, Texas, um, and give a talk to the Rotary Club. And so I went early. And we were sitting before the talk. I was sitting with the Rotarians. And this has nothing to do with the particular group I was with. But I was sitting with the Rotarians. And, of course, the conversation was all around the tragedy that had occurred the day before. It was so interesting to me. Because my assumption was that this this was going to have to prove that... Guns, the availability of firearms, just could not work in this society. I mean, you couldn't face the tragedy without any other conclusion. So I was sitting at the table, ready for everybody, for the first time in this central heart of Texas area, to agree with me. (laughs) Just the opposite. The methodology of reactivity sent them to the conclu- just the opposite conclusion. This is the reason we should bear arms. This is the reason that we should be more self-protected. This is the reason that we should have greater definition. At that point, I knew it was never going to work to counter-argue this. It was not going to work. I knew that. I saw it. If it wasn't going to happen then, it was never going to happen. that something else would have to enter if we were going to lay down our guns because it wasn't going to happen through the story and the storyteller because the storyteller says, my God, I'm up in arms, literally, with this. And the angst grows and the antagonism grows and the drama of the story becomes so blown up that the sense of differentiation, of separation, increases And the conclusion is to play out the content. You see, the storyteller only has one tool, and that's to play upon the content of the story. And so I have to use the content of the story for the credibility and the direction that the story is taking. It's so... And the storyteller will never look at its own limitation. It doesn't look at its own 
It just says, oh, I haven't used the right content in my story to make the story work. Do you see that? I haven't got the right job. I haven't got the right... Oh, so I'll plan the right job. I'll plan the right marriage. I'll plan the right... See, it just goes on and builds further story. We feel that. And you feel the whole problem. Content is what it knows. It only knows to add to its story. It only knows to further fable, to fabulize. And we believe that we can find happiness in the details of the story to make it come out right. So we spend a lot of energy and force to try to manipulate the content in order for the story to have a happy ending. So how many of our stories have happy endings? You see, the happy ending never comes. It's always in the future that the happy ending is going to come. which means that it comes in the further telling of more story because that's where the future is. Isn't that interesting? See, when we're storytellers, the only thing we have is our story. Who are we without that story? In Seattle... Sometimes I have people do things like experiment with each other where they'll ask one another, who are you without your story? And the person is supposed to drop to the level of experience where they're not generating a story and answer that question. Who are you? You can hold that question yourself. Who are you? Who am I without that story? You see, many times in the course of a day, we don't have a story. The story drops away. It's not as if it's perpetual. And You've all experienced it in the course of this week and in the course of your life. You may be outside gardening. And you're, before you went out in the garden, the day and your life was heavy upon you. And the details of it were tragic, and the whole thing was felt very dramatic. You go out into your garden, and you're with the peonies. You're with the plants. You're with your, your garden. And there isn't any problem in that moment. There's no problem. And we come out of that, and we pick the problems back off, off, the, off the shelf. Now, it wasn't that those problems were somewhere on a shelf during the time you were in the garden. Those problems did not exist. I'm not joking. This is not a joke. This is really the fact. Those problems did not exist. But we are so used to filling in with the assumption of I, the storyteller, to being the assumption of the storyteller, that when there are those moments of abeyance, we just write them off as just, I had forgotten about them temporarily. And then we pick them back up again, as if they were somewhere we could actually physically reassume the tragedy. And then we just continue in the story. 
am I without my story? There's no rest. There's no resting. When the resolution of my story in the future is always in the future, where is there any contentment now? And we bring our story into our meditation, which is supposed to be the very practice in which we allow that story to rest, to be in abeyance. We carry it even into the details of our practice. And we're, if we could use the meditation to learn about the storytelling and how it confirms the storyteller, but most of us lose that and just, be, just tell more tales. There's no rest. I think at one point, there's no rest in this. There's no rest in this. No rest. All my life I've wanted a child, and I don't have one. All my life I've... We each have our reason that confirms our incompletion, don't we? We each have it. Tied intimately to the events of our life. All my life. And even when we try to bring, you know, the absence of a story to this situation, to the now, which is a blank slate, it understand that the now is a blank slate. But how blank do we see that slate? Look out from your eyes. How blank do you see that slate? It's because we are looking through the story, even as this conversation is occurring. And the themes of our past constantly play reference to the present, so that we can't have a blank slate. And it's a deliberate intention not to do so. You know, um, I have history with this IMS since the opening days. Some history, either as a yogi or as a staff member or as a teacher. Now, when I teach here, I enter that history. I mean, the amount of projected feelings, values, and everything that this place has, has all of that. It's so interesting to come in here, because I don't think there's another facility in my life that holds the weight of that, of the charge of this particular center. And so when I sit up here, is, is I'm constantly feeling that play forth in action, speech, and mind. But that doesn't mean it has to play forth. That doesn't mean that it has to be replicated. That doesn't mean that I have to follow because the currents of my mind continue to play forth those themes. It doesn't mean that I have to 
pick up those currents and continue the delivery in like manner. And neither do we in whatever ways our spouse, our job, or whatever situation might be arising. We don't have to play forth those same themes. The only reason we do is because we feel comfortable within those themes. It's like a safe boat ride. We know exactly where we're going and we know exactly where, who we are to get there and what we need to do to get there. I had an experience of that when I was uh, getting a master's degree in social work. I, was, uh, I had my uh, field placement in a maximum security uh, setting for uh, uh, youth. And these are people who were murdered and killed and robbed and raped and everything. And they were all 18 or under. So there was one child there who was 16 who had uh, had, uh, I think it was armed robbery or something. So as a field placement, um, I, you know, we worked together for the entire year of my field placement. And, and uh, I wasn't, I was not knowledgeable about the Dharma back then, but you know, I really felt that he had changed significantly. And that, uh, and I uh, recommended that he get out prematurely. And so based partially on my recommendation, they let him out. And he's out, and two months later, uh, he is on trial as an adult for killing a policeman. And I thought, oh, the themes of our life are so strong, aren't they? That you put, them, put us in a new situation, those themes can actually uh, be in abeyance for a while. We can rearrange things. But then, if you put the person back out in the same, within the same environment from which those old themes played forth, the new themes aren't rooted deeply enough to maintain that new value system. And I just saw how entrenched we are within our storylines to play it out. And that when we come here for a week, a year, you see, and we expect our lives to be changed, unless we carry those themes out, unless we apply those themes to our life actively, then quite likely we just fall back into the same patterns. And that's why people get so discouraged so quickly uh, many times when they go out of retreat. Now, The content of the stories that we tell do not alleviate the pain. We all know that by now, that you can't shuffle content in your life and expect the cause of pain to diminish. We can do things which give us a temporary relief of pain, but the cause of pain remains very much But because the storyteller has other tools available, 
what the storyteller does is to blame the content for the pain. And that's called projection. That's called taking what is inside oneself and placing it external to oneself. And that's a wonderful mechanism for never being responsible to one's pain because it's always in the person, in the antagonist, in the person, and the other, and the other. And so the content never brings a complete satisfaction because there's always a tension between what we don't like in ourselves and our projected reaction outward with others. The other way, the other two tools that the storyteller uses, which are very interesting, are fear and desire. These are the mechanisms for writing a good story. And so it's, they're entirely imaginative. Fear and desire are entirely imaginative. That means that they are conjured up They are not a depiction of reality. They are a statement or reaction to what we perceive in our story that is needed to fulfill the story's ending. Right? I need this. I want that. I have to avoid this. But if you look at fear and desire, it's always the expectation of how this moment is going to evolve into the next. And that's comes out through the storyline, through our writing, the fantasy of what we think will happen, not what is actually happening. So what happens? How does it all come crashing down on us? Because it has to. It's, I think, a growing dissatisfaction as we get older that the payoff of life hasn't occurred the way the themes of life were supposed to have the payoff. The story hasn't concluded. It hasn't, I haven't reached what I was told I should be or would have reached given my age, my disposition, my intelligence, my whatever our particular storyline is. And there's a weariness that comes in the writing and a despondency, I think, a despairing. That maybe this isn't about storytelling. And at that point, some of us may be interested in actually looking at the storyteller. Now the whole thing, the whole game changes. No longer are we interested in fulfilling the storyteller through the content of more and more fables, but rather to turn our attention back to the storyteller, him or herself, and to see who is it that's writing this fable, this tale. And is this tale true? Is this tale true? 
And what we begin to see as we look at the content that we have used to create the storyline is that it's full of words and reactions, but really, it's really based in something very quite, sim- quite simple, just thought. And we begin to see or hear our thinking. So what we have taken the story to be, subjectively, we begin to see objectively. We begin to see the very writing of the story itself objectively. And all of the drama that we use to create the writing objectively. And so the reactivity that we have used to create the antagonism and the resistance diminishes because no longer are we embedded within the story any longer. We're seeing it from the outside. And the charge of it is off. Another way of saying is it becomes less personal. The content changes to the processes of our mind, where it's no longer story after story, it's emotion, thought, feeling, just what we have been doing here this week. We start breaking apart the very act of writing itself. We see where the writing has come from. It's come from the reactivity or the reaction or the resistance to the pieces that are in front of us. And that if we go back to the very basics of the pieces, the story doesn't get written. That we can stop and place the pen, put the pen up, lay the pen aside. Now the reason we don't want to do that is because it leaves us feeling like we're looking into the hole of the donut. It's wonderful as long as we have a rim to walk around and we can talk about the hole. It's a little different when you have to peer into it. And that's, for the most part, we don't feel... We feel scared. Often an accompanying emotion to beginning to see into the storyteller is or can be fear. Which is what? The temptation to continue to write the story. You see? So you have to be strong enough to know that when you put your pen down, you put it down. No matter how bad it gets, you don't pick it back up again. Because to pick it back up again is to continue continue the script. Scene one, scene two, scene three. That when we put the pen down, we've seen that basically it's untrue. That it's not true. That it's just been a fable. It's been an imaginative response. It's been a story. It's just, we're, it's just been that. <clears throat> now, I don't particularly personally like the word emptiness because it sounds too devastating 
to us. But how about the word presence? How about the word vitality, aliveness? How about the word awareness? Does that sound so terrifying? Wholeness. Contentment. When we put the word down, when we put our pen down, everything changes. When we're on the rim looking into the hole, it's scary. When you put the pin down and jump into the hole, it's not scary at all. It's fulfilling. And everything changes. No longer does the writing cover over the moment. The moment is unformed, remains unformed. The Buddha talked about nibbana, nirvana, the absolute freedom, as the unformed. Maybe it's as simple as putting down the pen. Now, when I talk about this, I want to be careful because I know that some of you have had tragic histories and that you can't just put down the pen. And I respect that. I respect the difficulty that many of us have in being able to put down our lives, the story of our lives, and that we often have to do a great deal of uncovering and working to even approach the idea that that's possible. And that is not outside of what I'm talking about at all. In fact, I encourage that kind of work for as long as it takes. And there are some people in here as well who have long since had writing cramp. And it's ready to put the and are ready to put the pen down. And I think we have underestimated in this tradition for some time your willingness to put the pen down. For everything comes in on that moment. So it's not to deny that the story can have its use even in our meditation practice at all. I'm not saying that. But to question it. For ultimately, the story protects the storyteller from stillness itself. From relinquishing our distinction. And that's why we have such need for enemies. Because enemies give us the rub and the drama for the story to continue. And if you look at the history of human life, 
Mostly it's been about enemies. Who am I if I put down the pen? Begin to see that when your story is running, just get, get to that point in the retreat. Oh, that's a story. I don't have to. That's a story. I'm just, that's a story. I see. That's a story. Well, he thinks that I'm, I'm in that person next to me. That's a story. Oh, that's a story. Okay. I can put down the pen. And this is such a hard retreat. I can't, this is so difficult. Where is that? The moment doesn't contain that. What we bring to the moment contains that. Then we come to contentment. Contentment is putting down the pen, not making the story work. May we all have writer's cramp. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.